0: Verse number 10, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, they be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it been declared unto me, of you, my brethren, by them that are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made none effect. We're talking about doctrines, not dudes, proposals, not persons, ideas, not individuals. Um, Pastor Richard Barcelo said this on a, a radio program I was listening to about a dispute that was going on in his uh, denomination. And the point he was making was. So much of the dispute didn't have anything to do with the doctrines being taught, but it was more about whose side you were on. There was a theological issue at play, but people were taking sides as to who was right by who was the one putting forth the idea. With my, and people often take sides based upon what team or what tribe, but not on what is true. You see this kind of spirit in politics. Whatever my guy says is good. And if my guy does something bad, well, your guy's probably done the same and even worse. So it's a justification of any wrong. And, you know, my guy can only do what is right. It's not about truth or principles most of the time, it's about winning. And sometimes it's not even about winning, but just making sure the other guy loses the spirit of partisanship sometimes maybe often the spirit of the age can come into the thinking of God's people we're in the world and we've been saved out of the world and the spirit of God renews our minds that so we no longer think like the world so without grace we wouldn't able to be to we wouldn't able to discern the way then it's always been without thinking that's the way that it ought to be. So we can't discern right and wrong without the Spirit of God showing us what is right according to the Word of God. We're born into the world, and that's just the way we think until God shows us that the way that we see the world from the time that we were born was the wrong way of looking at things. Our mind is renewed according to the Spirit of God. There's a story about two trout that are swimming along the bottom of a river. And a catfish swims by them and says, hey boys, how's the water today? And the trout swim on a little ways and said, what's water? The point is, that's just the world that the fish live in. They don't think about water. It's always around them. they had never even thought of the concept of, of water because that's what they live in. And we're in the world... And without the power of the Spirit, without the renewing of the mind of the Word of God, we would never understand that we're immersed in a culture that's sinning against the Lord because we've never experienced anything else. Those who are dead and trespasses and sins might look at you with amazement and that when you say this world is dark and under the, the power of the devil because this is the only world that they know. In a world where what was said wasn't as important as how it was said, the church in Corinth, I think, were judging God's people, the messengers of grace, by an ungodly standard, which turned into division. They were in a culture of rhetoric, a culture of sophistry, a culture where being on top was very important and, and Having power was very important. There were ins in culture and there were the outs of culture and you wanted to be on the inside. And that culture, which, which they were saved out of, that was brought into the church. Where there should have been unity in the body, there was division and debate. Unity in Christ will bring unity in the body. And so there was division here in Corinth because the standard by which they were judging what was right and wrong, who was was right, who you should listen to, was being judged by an ungodly standard. And when Christ and the gospel was not preeminent, the question is, who will be preeminent? If Christ is not preeminent, who will be? And so along those lines, I'll be preaching my message this morning. Um, and we'll have two thoughts. Um, heavenly thinking and Christian unity and worldly thinking and unchristian division. So to steal the phrase from um, Pastor Barcellos, we can title it Doctrines and Do's because that's what it came down to, men or truth. So for well, this first thing of this first part of the, the text heavenly thinking, and Christian unity. So Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. There be no no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So here we have first an exhortation in the Lord to unity. So Paul exhorts them, he admonishes him, beseeches them that they would be united in the, in the name of Christ. Now this isn't a suggestion that Paul makes because he speaks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as God, in the name of God, in the name of your Lord, in the name of your King. This is God's will for this church. God calls us to be faithful in the church. True. God calls us to be faithful in Service and worship and assembly and truth in the ordinances to be faithful to hold uh, the ordinances as prescribed in the scripture so we baptize believers as per the scripture we, we immerse believers as per the scripture the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is for God the membership of the church as the scripture teaches us but we also must be faithful in unity. And this is something that the church must endeavor to persevere or pursue. This is one of the missions that God himself has called us to is to pursue this unity in love in the spirit. Paul exhorts them as brethren. He said, "I beseech you, brethren, I think this is a very subtle way that Paul is reminding them who were at odds with one another who they were at odds with. Anytime there's a problem in the church it's very tempting to forget who you're dealing with. Because we think, well, that's my enemy. That's my opponent. That's the person who disagrees with me. But really... Paul reminds these people right off the story. he said brethren we are dealing with in the church body brothers and sisters for whom Christ died not only is it possible for somebody to be wrong about something it's, it's going to happen none of us are perfect none of us are right all the time It's also possible for two brothers to both be wrong about something. That's also very possible. It's possible for the person who is right to become so zealous that he destroys his brother who is wrong and and casts him off. That's also a possibility, that somebody be right, but then pursue their, their zeal towards whatever it might be in a way that destroys his brother. Paul deals with that in the book of Romans. Don't destroy your brother because of meat. That's somebody who was right, but went about it the wrong way. So Paul begins this section with a reminder those that are at odds with one another are brethren. We're family. We are adopted by God and united to the same Christ and by the same spirit. That, sp- that same spirit that would have us all cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, We're washed by the same blood. Oh, loved by the same Lord and Savior. Oh, the the unity that a church has is stronger bonds than even blood ties with family. So Paul says this exhortation to unity is one among family, among brethren. Then he says to speak the same thing. It's God's will that we speak the same thing. And really this is just a call to peace. It's not like we have to memorize a certain vocabulary and we all have to just repeat the same thing. Today, if we're, we, might, <clears throat> we might say we're all on the same page. All right? So to speak the same thing would be In our terms, maybe, yeah, we all agree. We're on the same page with that. We're thinking the same. It's a call to peace. Well, let's let's imagine it this way. Let's say, okay, let's stop, and we're going to sing a hymn right in the middle of service, and I pick up the hymnal and say, let's turn to uh, Amazing Grace. I say, let's turn to 204, I think it is. Well, Crystal goes up into the blue book, so I pick up this book and I say, let's turn to Amazing Grace. It's 203 actually. So I said 204, I meant 203. So you all turn to page 204. Crystal turns to 204 in the wrong book. I'm going to start singing Amazing Grace. Well, then Harold says, well, I don't want to sing Amazing Grace. I want to I sing Trust and Obey. When Keith says, well, I want to sing A Child of the King. Elijah says, well, I want to sing um, Rock of Ages. And so we all start singing. Crystal plays one tune. I sing one song. And everybody else sings another song all at the same time. What are you going to have? You're going to have a mess, aren't you? We might all sing the best that we can. Individually, we might all sound beautiful. Individually. But when we're all on different pages, singing different things, what's well, it's going to be a mess. It'll be, it'll be chaos. Well, Paul is wanting the church not to be on different pages. He wants them all to be on the same page, singing the same piece of music. And there may be some singing bass and some singing tenor and some alto, but they're all singing together on the same page singing the same song. And so in the church, it's not that we all have to say the same thing, but we need to be on the same page with the same mind and thoughts and purpose. And so every person in the church with their own gifting of God, singing their part, it's all the same music. Paul calls them to keep the peace, to endeavor to this. There's practical ways to keep peace. I saw a picture of a church that had a hallway in the front of the building and had a big bulletin board on it and in real big letters it said God robbers. And it had a list of all the people in the church that hadn't tithed the previous week. And so you walk in the door, and if you didn't tithe last week, then your name is up on that list for public shaming. I thought, well, that's one way to get everybody on the same page, through fear and intimidation. But I also wonder how many of those people were cheerful givers, or just not wanting their name on the no, list. No. Right? You can use fear and intimidation, but that really won't bring unity. Technically, everybody might be on the same page even if they don't believe it. That's not what Paul's calling for either. He's not calling for everybody to speak the same thing but believe different things. Right. So in our in our mouth, we confess one truth. In our heart, we believe another. Yeah. Yeah. President Reagan told a, a joke about the Russians when he was president. He said that um, America was superior one American told a a Russian, he said, our country is superior because I can walk right up to the White House. I can go straight into the Oval Office, slam my fist on the Oval Office desk, say, Mr. President, I don't like the way you're running this country. He said, that's the freedom that we have. The Russian said, well, I can do that too. He said, I can march myself straight into the Kremlin go straight to the General Secretary, pound my fist on his desk and say, Mr. General Secretary, I don't like the way Ronald Reagan is running his country. You know, he had freedom of speech, he could say whatever he wanted, as long as it was approved by those in power. That's not the kind of thing Paul's talking about here. He's not calling for us to pretend, to play act, to have... Me as a a dictator to say this is what you this is what we will do and this is how we will say and and so forth. What he's calling for is unit true unity among God's people that we all agree the same things and think the same things about the word of God about our Lord. So, over in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 through 6, Paul tells the church at Ephesus. about this unity, endeavoring, trying to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Working towards this as a goal to have the unity, to keep the unity, to guard the unity, to protect it that the spirit gives us in the bonds of peace. What are the grounds for such unity? Well, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That's the grounding of our unity. This is one body. We're indwelt by one spirit. We have one hope. There's not a hope for me and a hope for you. There's one hope. And we share that hope together. We share that hope of salvation. That I can talk to you and you can talk to me, and we would be agreed upon that one way of salvation. I could be laying sick, and you could tell me of our hope. Our hope. That's a great bond of unity. We have one Lord this morning, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So there's much that we have that we speak the same thing. That's the focus. We start here and we endeavor to keep the unity and the bond of peace with that foundation. Well, Next, we find that we say the same thing and then that we are set together. He says, and there be no divisions among you, but you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. So there shouldn't be any divisions in the church. A division in the church would be like ripping a t-shirt in half, right? You, you rent it. It's torn. The fabric, it's been divided. But rather, the church should be like, it should be perfectly joined together and my understanding is that was a medical term used in Paul's day for setting a, a broken bone. So the church should be perfectly joined together. It should be set back together. It's not like we find a church where everybody thinks like we do, but you, know, you go church shopping to find one that, that has the same hobbies and, and so forth that you like. But it's a broken people come to God's house and are set together we're healed we're strengthened together in the unity that we have Christ we have in the Lord Jesus broken relationships lives broken by sin they're joined together and set together perfectly in one it's a one body where people from different backgrounds, different jobs, different thoughts can come together and be perfectly set as one because what we're doing here is not finding ways that we can be unified and looking for ways to be unified. We're not polling and saying, well, what does the church want to talk about? That way we can find common ground and talk about that. No, we are having one mind as the Spirit renews our minds and, and joins us together with the one focus of the gospel, the, the goal in coming together in the truth. Not just the goal for unity, but the goal to come together in Christ as one. To have to know the truth and to have the do- same doctrine and judgment in the decisions in the body. The goal isn't divisions and strife, but unity. It's not constant debate and strife, but coming to the knowledge of the truth. So when we have primary focus upon the word of God and our unity, we can come and we can grow together and learn together and be helped together, and our minds are renewed, not to uh, find, not to put the things of the world as the primary focus, but Christ is the primary focus, that we have something higher than ourselves to unify us. We have something transcendent, something eternal, someone transcendent, someone eternal that our hearts are tied to. Our unity is not found in ourselves, but it's found in the Lord Jesus. So unity in Christ, when we are thinking the right things, thinking in Christian ways, unity in Christ will bring unity in the body. But when Christ and the gospel is not preeminent, someone else will be. Someone or something else will be. So that brings us to our second point, starting in verse eleven: worldly thinking and unchristian division. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Christ, not contentions. So word had gotten back to Paul that there was contentions in the church at Corinth. Some sort of debate some sort of argument and strife was present among the people of God. And based upon what he had just said, this ought not to have been. Well, Paul laid out the vision for a church, but in reality, they're like a broken bone or ripped up fabric. They're all singing songs in the church at Corinth, but from the wrong page. Read a little bit later, it was almost literally like that people using their gifts and everybody had a psalm everybody had something to say and, and people were talking in languages other people didn't understand it was it was chaos. What was the what's the centerpiece though that well you'll see throughout the rest of the book in instances like that well, whose house of God is it? who is preeminent? What should should have been a place of worship, a place of love, a house of prayer, have become a place for debate and strife? There's nothing in the world quite so bad as to go to God's house when there's division. It's actually deadly. Now, this is 1 Corinthians, but if somebody got mad here, it's not like they could have went to 2 Corinthians church down the street it's not that because it's 1st Corinthian church and 2nd Corinthian church divisions here would lead people to stop worshiping at all stop assembling at all it was deadly what was happening here in Corinth to the people of God Christ not contentions here is the theme when we put Christ first we can put things in the right order what's going on here so starting in verse 12, it says, Now this I say to everyone, of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. If I baptized also in the house of Stephanas, besides, I know not whether I baptize any other. So what was this division all about? Well, there was factions in the church. And all these factions were divided up under the banner of one of either Peter, Cephas, Paul, Apollos, or perhaps even Christ. And so you had groups, probably four groups of people. And you had people, well, I'm, I'm of Paul Oh, yeah, well, I'm of Peter. Oh, yeah, well, I'm of Apollos. (laughs) Now, what made them divide up, we really don't know. You know, I have my, my thoughts, but we don't really know exactly why they divided up. But it was probably that they were dividing among themselves because of how people were communicating those truths. There's some clues as to why they were. For one, Paul included himself and Christ in one of the groups. So there was some opposition to Paul. And some people were taking up his name, being on Team Paul. But Paul didn't like that. He didn't like the opposition because he was teaching truth. But he also didn't like people who were gathering together and saying, Well, I'm on Team Paul. So for whatever was going on here it's more than just the doctrine that was being taught because obviously he's not opposed to his own teaching right Paul's not going to rebuke someone for saying I agree with what Paul has to say and obviously Paul's not against Christ and he's not going to say to rebuke people well I believe only what Jesus says So there's something more to it that is above the the doctrine, or beside the doctrine. I think Paul boils it down to him and Apollos in chapter 3. And then you get to the next chapter, in chapter 2, he's talking about the wisdom of the world, and I think that's where all this is coming from. The idea that the sophistry of worldly wisdom was the, the arbiter of who was true, and who was right had settled in the minds of the people. Eloquence and presentation was very important in this time. It's important now, but there was an art to it um, in, in this culture. And for many people, it was more important how you said something than what you said. That's the same today. Right? People are, are more concerned how something is said than what is said. Years ago, it would have been if the preacher screams and pounds the pulpit, then he was really preaching. It didn't matter what he said. It's just if uh, you know, his face got red and he looked like his, his head was about to pop, that meant he was really preaching. But did he say anything with, with hearing? Well, that didn't matter. Well, you know, it's always been like that. People want want to be shown something. But what about what was being said? The book, the, the scriptures tell us that Apollos was eloquent. That he was very mighty in scripture. Apollos probably come from a Hellenized uh, Greek culture, would have known all these um, devices of rhetoric and would have used them well to pursue uh, truth. And people would have saw, perhaps, how Apollo spoke and the way he used his arguments. And so, well, obviously, Apollo should be head of the path because he, he is eloquent. Now, this, is, this is what I'm assuming that the, the issue is here. So Aristotle said, the public speaker should show himself to be of a certain character, should know how to put, to judge in a certain frame of mind. The speaker who appears to possess good sense, virtue, and goodwill will convince his hearers. And so the, the way that public speaking was taught was you have to have an appearance have a good argument you have to have the appearance of virtue people well judged upon that appearance so Paul's not arguing against rhetoric because he uses it here he's not arguing against persuasion because he uses it here so on Sunday school Paul desired that his words would be believed He wanted people to believe what he had to say, and he he did with all of his heart. But the heart of the issue here is that men were dividing. They were dividing the church in distinctions in places that didn't matter, judging God's people by worldly standards, not by the unity that they had in Christ. Because Paul and Apollos and Peter, and Christ were all on the same page. Paul was not teaching a different doctrine than Christ. Paul was not teaching a different doctrine than Peter, and Peter wasn't teaching a different doctrine than Apollos. They might have said things differently. They might have presented them differently, but they were all on the same page. One may have been, Paul may have been a tenor while Apollos been a bass. But they were all singing the same tune, the same doctrine. And Paul said, you are dividing the church where there is no division. The church had an eye problem. Look at verse 12. Now this I say of every one you that saith, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I of Cephas. And I of Christ. There's your problem right there. I, not we, but I. I go this way. Well, I go this way. My judgment is this way. Well, my judgment is that way. Their division revolved around personalities and took the preeminence over the truth. So what did what did Paul say? What's his answer to this? He says, is Christ divided? You all are divided. You're on Paul's team. You're on Peter's team. You're on Apollos' team. You're all divided. You're all ripped like broken bones. All on different pages. Well, is Christ? Is Christ divided in mind and will? If Christ is not divided, then how can the church be divided? Does Christ have different opinions? If division is the way it should be, then that would mean Christ was divided. This is a very good question to ask in situations like this. Is Christ divided? <laughs> Oftentimes people divide up on the sides of, of personalities, not in unity to Christ. We've all seen it. You've all been bad this long enough to have seen where two prominent people get in a fight with one another and then sides are taken. Not on right and wrong, but this guy's my friend and I'm going to stick beside him and what he says is right. Well, this guy's my friend and I'm going to stick beside him because he's right. And churches were divided. Because I am of this one and I am of that one. Is Christ divided though? Are we seeking His will and following the truth or judging by worldly standards? We say, well, I can't take a stand for truth because I'm of the other team. And the person who said the truth is on the wrong team. Was Paul crucified for you, he asked? Are you baptized in the name of Paul? All these questions, of course, are, are a re- uh, an, uh, an example of rhetoric to say something extreme in which everyone knows is wrong in order for us to think about this. Was Paul crucified for you? You people who are taking up the banner of Paul, Then I'm on Paul's side. I'm I'm not like you who are on Apollos' side. Paul said, You who take up my banner, did I die for your sins? Who was crucified for you? Who was lifted up on a cross and nailed there and suffered and bled and died for you? Was it Paul? Uh We could say that today. Uh Who was crucified for you? It wasn't me. It wasn't A.W. Pink. It wasn't John Gill. Who was nailed to a cross and crucified for you? It was the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins. It is He who we follow. It is He whom we serve. And, and we would lay down our lives to follow Him. Are you baptized in Paul's name? No, we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we ask, why are you dividing the church in personalities where you have one Lord in Christ who died for your sins, you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not in these different factions. You know, Paul goes on to say, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Not because baptism isn't important. But most likely somebody was making a case about it. Maybe again drawing from the culture and saying who you were baptized by was more important, was very important. No, he says what's important is Christ died for us. And that baptism is a symbol, an initiation um, into the church of Christ. It's not about men. It's not about who did it. It's representing our union with Christ. It represents our death to sin. It represents His death for us, His resurrection for us, and our walking in newness of life. So all these things Paul brought together to make us think on why we have unity and where there's disunity, disharmony, the focus is in the wrong place. It's the subject preached, not the preacher. Verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made in effect. This verse provides the points for the rest of the chapter and all the way through chapter four. Paul is a preacher of the gospel. And human wisdom is not equal to the truth of the cross. Paul was sent by Christ to preach the gospel. It was Jesus who died for sinners. It was Jesus who was nailed to a cross. It was Jesus that paid our sin debt. It was Christ who died. It was Christ who rose again. And it is the gospel that has the power to forgive you of your sins this morning. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us the good news that there is salvation, that you can have your your sins forgiven, your debt be wiped away, to walk in newness of life, to have eternal life. And it's all in faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul didn't come to be an orator. He didn't come to make himself look good. And we, were, we were joking about the, the Gatorade and all, but I mean, if you left here and said, wow, what a great preacher, what a clever outline, what a powerful delivery, then I failed at the, my purpose. Because that kind of thinking makes the cross of none effect. It makes it empty. Because you come and say, I've come to, to hear him say something, rather than I've come to hear of Christ. And that's Paul's point here. He wasn't saying that, it, and he won't say that, it, that you're just supposed to come and, and just read and then go home. But, but what he's saying is, if the purpose lifts up the man... Then, then the point is wrong. That devoids the cross of any power if the point is to say, who's the better, better man? If worldly wisdom is lifted up high, then what about the cross of Christ? What room is there if, if, if you have the preeminence or if, or if Apollos has the preeminence? No, Christ must have the preeminence. To preach for personal elevation lifts the preacher up, makes preaching power the focus, rather than gospel power. When Christ and the gospel is preeminent, or if Christ and the gospel is not preeminent, who will be? Who will be? Well, whoever is will have the glory, and whoever is will have that position sought after. Oh, my God. It will either be a person, an issue. If Christ isn't preeminent, then there will be divisions. But unity in Christ brings unity in the body. Let us pray for unity in Christ.